The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. If you haven't fast-forwarded through this part yet, here's Brandon. Welcome back to the Brandon Peters Show and our second installment of Tim Burton's Big Retrospective. Tim Burton. And, of course, along with me for this event, the Raps, Scott Mendelssohn. Hello, Scott. Close. Welcome. Not no relation to the G- German composure. We're Russian. Oh, we also have okay. an, they have an H in their last name, and we do not. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Russian, awesome. That's pretty hot nowadays, right? And possibly Turkish. When my fa- when my mother's father was dying of dementia, he started speaking Turkish. So oh. I'm thinking he has some Turkish heritage, but whatever. You didn't call for an exorcism. No, we're Jewish. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I changed my mind. He's speaking Turkish. The devil spoke Turkish. No. I don't know if he did. I don't. Sorry, Turkey. I didn't mean. It's not. We think you're a Turkish delight. Oh, yes. Just like, um, was it? The Chronicles of Narnia. The lion, yes. the witch, and the wardrobe. I don't know if I've ever had a Turkish delight. Are I don't they, think I have either. Are they delightful? Are uh, they I don't know. Do they come from Turkey? Uh, email like us to, right would us, you like to hear us, the vulgar yeah. joke that i told to my then girlfriend future wife when we were watching that movie all Fingers. right all right that tilda swinton as the, as the what the white witch i said mm-hmm. you know wendy she may not have turned me to stone but she kept me rock hard the entire movie all right excellent uh, <laughs> wow all right okay uh that's uh that's th- this is that's one way to kick off Tim Burton uh, episode <laughs> two. Uh, uh, I, I figure we're t- already going to get canceled because of the Turkish jokes. So yeah, I guess so. This is rotten. Uh, welcome, alt right uh, listeners. You're our crowd now, I guess. Um, hi, <laughs> Tim Burton. We're talking about him. <laughs> you probably hold on to these movies. They're from the eighties. So <laughs> all right. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so we, we went last week, if you decided to jump in this week and not go to last week, last week we talked about all of Tim Burton's shorts uh, up into uh, Frank and Weenie, which you probably know, um, and now we're moving on to Tim Burton uh, doing his first feature films and some more TV work here in this episode, which Frank and Weenie, the film that got him fired from Disney, why could he do this, caught the eye of one Paul Rubens who said, that's the guy I want to bring my stage show to the big screen with. Yes. Our first movie is Pee-wee's Big Adventure. (laughs) Warner Brothers is proud to present the story of a rebel. I know you are, but what am I? And his bike. (laughs) Pee-wee Herman. In Pee-wee's Big Adventure, 
you will believe a man can ride a bike. I meant to do that. Ready PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Which is directed by Tim Burton, of course. Written by Paul Rubens, Phil Hartman, and Mike Barhall. Starring Paul Rubens, Elizabeth E.G. Daly, Mark Holton, Diane Salinger, Judd Oman, and Alice Nunn. When an eccentric man-child Pee Wee Herman gets his beloved bike stolen in broad daylight, he sets out across the U.S. on the adventure of his life. All right, uh, Scott, here we are. First film from Tim Burton. Uh, the one I think a lot of people, when you first heard Tim Burton, maybe had to go back. Oh, he did Pee Wee? Because despite what we know now, I mean, it might not have been obvious, but this is one of the most perfect pairings of people on the same wavelength of influences and anything ever in film. Like you had a, an actor, crea- a creator, writer, comedian guy, and this director that while known for gothic stuff is really a lot as just as much in the wheelhouse of 60s suburbia like the wackiness of it to take it to an eccentric side and be like what are these people crazy right um (laughs) almost like your nightmare suburbia and that's what it looks like um for both rubens and burton um but yeah, Scott, uh, when did you first see, become aware of PB's Big Adventure? I saw it in theaters on or near opening weekend when I was five years old. It was a film that I inexplicably became aware of, just as something that sound, looked and sounded very funny to a five-year-old. Uh, I remember enjoying it. Obviously, I don't remember. I mean, obviously, I remember being temporarily freaked out by Large Marge, but hey, I was fine in the it's end. It's a rite of passage. Yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, I didn't know who Tim Burton was, nor did I know. You know, it wasn't until I think Edward Scissorhands that I, you know, the idea of this guy that had directed these other previous films, Batman and Beetlejuice and, and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And then, of course, by the time Batman Returns came out, it was like, oh, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. This is someone who I am officially a fan of. And, you know, the sub, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I imagine it's the way it is for a lot of people of our generation, which is part of the subtext of this podcast, is that he was one of the first directors that we came to associate with, you know, auteur theory, if you will, auteur theory for kids. Because <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, when you're eight, nine, ten, you're not necessarily checking out the backlog of Martin Scorsese pictures um, or, you know, Francis Ford Coppola. You guys going happened. to Last Temptation this weekend or no? <laughs> that was sold out. So we went to see Beetlejuice. No. <laughs> um, but yeah. And, you know, I've seen it several times over the years in one format or another. I've never I, I have yet. You know, I haven't seen it on the big screen since that opening weekend. But, mm-hmm. you know, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as a, a what's basically a comedic remake of The Bicycle Thief. It's pretty yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um I, I I personally didn't see this in a the theater. I saw it on VHS or TV. I think it went oh, it was a Fox Fox played it. Uh but I think I saw it on VHS or something beforehand. But I was big Pee Wee's Playhouse fan mm-hmm. uh growing up. I watched it every Saturday morning religiously. Um and this movie popped up and then there was Big Top Pee Wee came out during Pee Wee's Playhouse run. Yes, summer of 88. I didn't see that in theaters um, either. I saw that in VHS as well. I did get to see Pee Wee's Big Adventure in theaters uh, maybe, 
I want to say six years or so ago. Uh, we were talking off air before this about a, a, a retro um, vintage theater that's uh, near me, and they did a Tim Burton festival one weekend, and Pee Wee's Big Adventure in 35 millimeter was on the bill. Oh, so wow. I got to see that, and I got to see Batman for the second time in theaters. Beetlejuice, which we'll be talking about later in this episode, was part of that as well. Yeah, it's it's a road trip movie. It is a bicycle thief. Um, and it is just, I think, enjoyable for any age. And it's bizarre. It's clean, uh, slightly, subtly adult dirty in ways that I think kids can understand and adu- adults can understand in two different ways and enjoy. It's a stroke of brilliance almost. It's real weird. And it comes off a stage show, of all things. Um, none of his characters port over from that, though. Really, um, there's some cameos here. Like Phil Hartman writes, he shows up there, and I think is it Miss Yvonne at the beginning with the Tour de France that puts the, so. the crown on him. Yeah, and and I think it is got it's time. My kids fucking love Pee Wee Herman. It's insane. They like this movie. They like Pee Wee's Playhouse. They ca- they like that Netflix one they did, uh, the throwback one a couple years ago, and like they just they stop what they're doing when Pee Wee's on. I don't know, like or. Uh, we watched the, the the Christmas special from Pee Wee's Playhouse like probably two to three times every holiday season. Yeah, it's just it's crazy that he's been timeless. He only had a window of popular like super popularity for about what five years. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Because I mean, the it, movie comes out in '85. When was he? I mean, if you know, and otherwise I could Google it. When did the stage show start? His stage show started, I think. Because he pops up in, he popped up as Pee Wee Herman in another movie before this, uh, and his stage show was going. So I would, I would imagine, like, I think he started popping up in the late seventies in movies, maybe not as Pee Wee Herman, um, and then his stage show probably ran for that, that time. Um, I can't remember. I just watched. I think I just had to review a Blu-ray with that movie that he showed up as Pee Wee Herman in. Um, but the the stage show with of course Lawrence Fishburne and Phil Hartman, I uh, can't. Gosh dang it! I mean, was he in Cheech and Chong's next movie as Pee Wee? Uh, he might. I think yeah. I think Pee Wee is like a cameo thing, yeah. probably. Um, it it was. Wait, was it that Cheech and Chong we had to watch for? No, no, no? That was two years earlier. Or that oh, was okay, two, two years earlier. Yeah, um, yeah, he's a desk clerk in that movie. Um, I can't remember him being Pee Wee in that. Yeah, he was in Cheech and Chong. Oh, stuff, he was so. in Back to the Beach. That was it. Back which was to the right beach. after Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So right, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. That, you're right. I was trying was to it. think. There was a movie where he was in there, and but he's not really a Pee Wee movie. And as a kid, I was slightly confused because, like, what the hell? Yeah, I forgot. And I still okay, never that's watched what Back it was. to the Beach because those movies were never my thing. Um, unfortunately, it. what we're getting to is in 1991, mm-hmm. in a scandal that even as an 11 year old smelled like shit to me, it was like he basically was busted for masturbating in a porn theater. Yeah. Horrors. In Florida. In Florida. In Florida. While I was now, on spring break in Florida. Yeah. I, I, I was in North Carolina. <laughs> I, I remember. The, I, it's funny. It was the summer of 91, and it was a huge deal. But even when I was a kid, initially, I thought when they said indecent exposure, you know, again, I'm 11 years old, I figured, oh, well, he must have liked been in the theater and like dropped his pants and given a show to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you know, it was a regular like theater. A, it was, well, I figured he had you know gotten in trouble because he had done like a strip club routine, you know, in front of everybody. It's like, nobody yeah. wants to see that. That's illegal. Yeah. But then, you know, I realized he was just basically just jerking off. Yeah. He went to an adult theater. I thought it was just, they sold it as like, he was in a theater. 
Yeah, yeah. And and he uh, was like, ah, everybody, and went nuts. And they had the mug. You, I remember his mug shot. It this was, was as unpeewee as humanly possible. He looked like a bad guy in a you know an eighties action movie. Yeah, and he was like um, shunned away. As, yeah, like, the show was canceled. I mean, it was basically canceled anyway. Yeah. Um, but they they pulled the last few episodes, and for all intents and purposes, that was the end of that character. Yeah. I mean, he would. You know, he showed up on the MTV Movie Awards maybe several months. Was it a year later? I mean, yeah, it must have been because they, they only do that once a year. Yeah, and it, just, it, it was it, there was a certain feeling in the industry that like they knew he had gotten a raw deal. Yeah, but you know, it's it's not like there are other projects out there that were screaming for a Paul Rubens type performance, right? But I remember it being sort of controversial when uh, Tim Burton did him a solid and gave him a silent cameo as Penguin's father in Batman Returns. And that was the only thing about Batman Returns that turned out to be controversial. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I remember that too, because it's like, oh, that's a nice gesture. I like Mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah, it was a neat touch, but it was like, oh, yeah, he showed up the the jerked off in a theater. Well, what were they not? Because it's in the 91 MTV Movie Awards. So when was that? That was probably that must have been like months after the fact. Yeah. Maybe he was already scheduled. September. So yeah, that was like a few months later. Okay. He comes on stage as Pee Wee basically says, I heard any good jokes lately. And it was sort of like a, you know, not a coronation or anything. You know, it wasn't like when Charlie Chaplin came back to get his honorary Oscar after being chased out of mm-hmm. America decades earlier. It wasn't quite that kind of thing. Right. But yeah, it, it's. I think we all knew that this was bullshit. They got caught up in a culture war with people just not being able to understand that, you know, oh no, what will kids say? Well, don't tell them about it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it is like, it's almost like it, the entertainment industry uh, exaggeration or mis-selling of what's actually happened and the, the uh, whatever, the severity of it as the woman who spilled coffee on herself from McDonald's thing from the 90s, where it's, it really was a McDonald's made it a huge freaking deal of what it really wasn't, and people got the wrong news. Yeah, because I mean, she deserved thing. every penny that she got, frankly. Yeah, and all she was like, hey, could you help me with my hospital bills? And turned out, she's yeah. trying to rob us a million, and if that and was the it case. Was- Incredibly it, valuable in terms of passing tort reform nationwide, unfortunately. Yeah, and the 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 thing was, it was they were selling the coffee at an illegal temperature too. Yeah, uh, not regulated. But but yeah, so Paul Rubens, like he would with that controversy, he would disappear. I mean, he had like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but like that he was hidden behind vampire makeup and that whole thing, and then he wouldn't like really appear in something like super high profile. What till Mystery Men? Yeah, by default. I mean, the the the, incident, the arrest happened in nineteen in, in the summer of nineteen ninety one. That was what thirty one years or thirty one years ago. Mm-hmm. In the last thirty one years, it has still been somewhat of a a novel situation when you see Paul Rubens pop up in anything. Yeah, and yeah. so I mean, it's it's hard not to say that it absolutely annihilated his career. Right. Um. And the you know the other thing is you know this was like I think 10, 15 years ago. He also got busted for having, you know, allegedly underage erotica in his house. Mm. And again, it was reported as, you know, he's got he's got child porn. Ah. And it was more like he was an art collector. And this is the kind of stuff that gay men often collected because, you know, you didn't you couldn't exactly go to a mainstream magazine to get what you want. Right. 
Right. Again, it's a little more complicated than that. I don't want to miss context. We don't have it, was, it in the social media era. Yeah, but it was another bullshit thing. Like yeah. right when he was sort of kind of sort of coming back. Yeah. Um. Very unfortunate. You know, it's not the Jeffrey Jones who probably deserved what he got. Yeah, we'll be talking about him today too. <laughs> and again, <laughs> but yes. this won't be the last time we talk about either of them. But there's a real mo- there's a real villain here, and he's going to appear a few more times. But. Fortunately, no regular players in Tim Burton movies other than that have ever amounted nope, to scandal. No, that should be it. That should be yeah. it, folks. I nope. think that's it. I Everyone checked. else is... I looked ahead. <laughs> um, I looked ahead. Courts, okay, the courts were fine. Yeah. there's. Um, I can't think of any actor that may have completely annihilated libel laws as we know them. But, you know, I might need a recollection on that. Yeah. So we should be good. Uh, so to the movie itself... Um, it, yeah, it's it, such a prototypical Tim Burton movie that I'm yeah. surprised he who shall not be named yet is not in it. Right, right. Um, and it's it's weird because like it's got all that. It and I love the fact that Pee Wee is yes an adult, but like everything about him is with kids. Like his mm-hmm. arch nemesis, the way he kind of acts, and like adults are like okay with it. And I love that they're all like, oh yeah, Pee Wee. Yeah. They just kind of, they accept him. Well, it's like he's playing a character who's clearly a child. He just happens to be in the body of an adult. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that the movie rolls with. Yeah. And that's, you know, obviously that's the character, you know, even more so in Pee-wee's Playhouse and what have you. But there is an earnestness and sincerity. And the fact that, you know, Pee-wee is a very relatable character and that he is not without his character flaws. Yeah. He is prone to judgment. He's... He Not can be a jerk. His feelings. He can be kind of a dick. Yeah. yeah. Um. And, you know. Uh, you know. Tell Dottie how you feel. Come on. <laughs> um. But and yeah, it, it it does have that Tim Burtonish feel of even you know it's a PG rated film that really feels like it's pushing the boundary of what kids were expected to be able to watch at that point in time. Right. Like a number of 80s films that have stood the test of time. Labyrinth, right. Monster Squad, Goonies, etc. Not Goonies. Goonies sucks. Um, Monster Squad for life. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> People who listen know this already. Yeah, they know yeah, this. We, yeah, we know the truth. But uh, I, mean, I love Richard Donner. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. What else? His better, uh, lo- his better Goonies was The Lost Boys. And he didn't direct it. Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a terrific, kid friendly but family appropriate, you know, invent fantasy comedy. Yeah, and you know, it, it's it's. I did not see the Bicycle Thief until I was in film school, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, Pee Wee's that's a one. And I even I didn't even add the vocabulary for this at the time, but in retrospect, Pee Wee is a wonderful ripoff. Don't remake. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it is in the same way that Clueless was technically a remake of Emma, but not. Uh, Really, it is iconic and popular on its own. Well, it's the uh, airheads to Dog Day Afternoon, pretty much is what they're doing here. Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's what it is. No, no, I, I never thought of it like that. Oh, yeah. you never realized Dog Day Afternoon and airheads? Well, it's I saw airheads once in theaters and didn't like it and didn't, didn't give it much of a thought. They even yell Attica. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh man, that's why I was like, oh yeah. That's now cool. you're gonna need another look. 
Oh, fuck that. Let's Bonus just... episode, folks. Airheads and Dog Day Afternoon. How about I just We're believe just you? I'll just take your word for it. Oh, man. Let's so, just say all people involved in that film have, have done better things elsewhere. Okay. okay. <laughs> Including Michael Richards. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, I also, like, Pee Wee's likes and styles is just fascinating to me. And they are... They're of this like howdy doody era type. The stuff he likes. Um, a, it's nice to see that kids like like watching my kids can like enjoy that. But like kids today with like electronic stuff, they're like the hell is he? That's boring stuff or whatever, you know. Um, but I think you know physical toys probably play cinematically better than watching someone on a phone or yes things. So there there is that to it. Um, and his, you know, I love his shoes. I always love his, his shoes and his white socks. I love it. I love it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's such a simple but iconic costume. Mm-hmm. And, and we, obviously, we, part of the popularity is something that's very easy to replicate at Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always, I love this movie goes through all wakes of life, visiting, and everybody treated in comedic and fair ways a yes. lot of the times. Like, we, we see... There's- the, like the dining staff, Simone, um, and like truckers and Hollywood types and uh, suburban types and and like bar, dingy bar types. And it's all fun. Nobody's a villain. Some might be some, well, you know, you know, um, but no, there's very little punching down in this picture. Mm-hmm. And as usual, Burton sympathizes with the weirdos. And, you know, if anything, you know, I don't want to simplify his career into one sentence, but to a certain extent, Pee Wee and a lot of Tim Burton films that we're going to talk about, the subtext is, you know, in a world this crazy, you'd have to be crazy to be normal. Right. Um, and um, and this film absolutely feels a part of that. And, you know, as much as that stuff was there in Burton's earlier work, the shorts we discussed last week, I do have to wonder how much of it was just that he ended up working with Paul Rubens at exactly the right time in his career. Has to be. Because this one and then his next feature film are going... It's weird to think part of the reason he, he'll he get Batman is just budget and delivering on time and not oh, going yeah. over. It's, and it's, and that's, that's all... I mean... That's what they like probably more than his artistry. Yeah. Um, and not to skip ahead a little bit, but, you know, when you look at his from Beetlejuice to be bat, be, or sorry, from Pee Wee to Beetlejuice to Batman, there's that, you know, the, the breakout small film. It was not an indie film by any stretch of the word, no. but it was a smaller picture. And then he goes on to a bigger budget studio flick where he's, you know, making a bigger movie with lots of special effects and he's able to do that and it is a success. It gets good reviews. It does well at the box office. And then he gets the gajillion dollar franchise film. Mm-hmm. You know, back when those barely existed for all intents and purposes. Right. And I genuinely believe that one of the, th- the problems with today's Hollywood is that there's so few middle of the road studio programmers being made that the directors often don't get an opportunity to just make a studio movie and show that they can do that and learn what the skills necessary between that indie breakout and that, you know, franchise film, they don't get their insomnia. They don't get their uh, creed. Yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those, you know, Nolan and Googler who are two of the best big movie directors going right now 
one thing they have in common is they got that mid-budget studio picture to you know improve themselves and and make mistakes and and you know point you know hone their craft before getting that 150 200 million dollar franchise picture well and and you don't and like the james wands who just like built it all from the ground up oh yeah kept I mean, going and going and then oh yeah i'll stop on the side and do a franchise picture yeah, like, like you know like i've got time to kill i'll make two movies from two different franchises that both top a billion dollars fucking yep. james cameron yeah um i mean look i mean not, not to be simplistic i think in some ways juan is the closest we've got to spielberg right now just mm-hmm. in terms of his impeccable popcorn movie instincts in films both big and small yeah I mean, I don't know if I necessarily need to see James Wan Schindler's List, whatever the hell that would be. Right. But in terms of mainstream popcorn entertainment, he's he's one of the best. Yeah, and I don't. And the, one of his is another one is his buddy Lee Wan L. And I wonder if he's on the rise to yep. a similar path. Um, he's doing uh, great things I, with no have money. Have I shared my stupid theory about the two of them? Okay. Well, I mean, you know, if you watch The Invisible Man and Malignant. They're not dissimilar pictures. Mm-mm. So my theory is that Lee Winnell had the script for Invisible Man and James Wan read it and goes, this is really good. You, sh- you should make this film as is. And then he grabbed some toads. He James licked the toads. And then he went and wrote Malignant. There you go. Uh, that works. I just recently revisited Malignant. It's beautiful. Awesome. I watch it every. I watch. I like. I don't get to watch a lot of movies over, especially new ones, a lot yeah. again. And that's when I. I. It's on a rotation. Like eh, it's been a while. It's time for *Malignant*. Like yeah. Even if I don't have time to watch the entire film, it's you know. And I know this isn't the ideal way to consume movies, but I enjoy watching it in you know certain segments, whatever I have time mm-hmm. for. Yeah. Um. And. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a terrific terrific horror movie, right? And I don't know if it would have done better commercially if it had been released in non-COVID times or not. I mean that's a coin toss, right? But I do know the way it was released, for better or worse, you have something that's very genuinely rare, which is an accidental but genuine cult film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, there, there. Yeah, there's quite a few of those. Um, been thinking about lately i'm like what's gonna be i i think i i have a i have a suspicion that the current rob zombies the monsters may find itself <laughs> called status i i think yeah. it has a potential to a since a lot of people are, are came into it like oh this is gonna be awful and some are like you know it's not that bad but i also think since it's on netflix and it's um rated for kids to watch during halloween there's an age group that suddenly is going to come back and be like rob zombies the monsters was good actually just wait <laughs> having not watched it yet i'm going to guess it was at least better than hocus pocus 2 i think so fair enough it at least feels like it has a pulse um, <laughs> so uh with this okay so this is in this line of duty we pick up danny elfman uh mm-hmm. doing the score for this movie iconic score remember it right away it's one of the boop doop ones that you were talking about um and speaking of music there's the iconic tequila scene that mm-hmm. i think was one the one thing most people pulled from this movie was him yes. dancing and maybe hearing that song tequila for the first time as a kid yeah it was the first time i'd ever heard it yeah uh and so scott before we move on 
where does this stand among road trip movies? Where would oh, you shit? Um, by default, one of the better ones. Yeah, I'd have to say I mean, if there's a top five or ten list, uh, this better be getting mentioned. I mean, you know, I I don't I don't want to you know. Is it better than Children of Men? Maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, road trip comedies. Let's go with that. <laughs> well, no, I like Euro Trip quite a bit. Um, although, sadly, you know the the. the Seen in Eurotrip where the kid in the background, you know, puts on a Hitler mustache and starts goose stepping the background, is now less funny because it's less farcical than it was in 2004. This is true. Like, uh, but anyway, no, uh, it's certainly by default one of the better road trip pictures. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, that we still talk about today, that it still works, that it's still, it's got a, you know, uh, icon- I'm gonna say, I mean, iconic, a legendary director attached to it that we still know by name because of how good he is. Um, um, I think that helps too, and it's got a character like it's the launch of a of a known Hollywood television movie character that more people know Pee Wee than Paul Rubens, and he was crediting oh, himself God, yes. just as Pee Wee Herman as himself. A lot of the time. And I don't think it's anywhere near as good of a movie, but Big Top Top Pee-wee is fun. It's fine. I remember enjoying it quite a bit when I was eight years old. And, you know, as a a lecherous eight-year-old, it was quite fun watching Pee-wee decide between Penelope Ann Miller and Valerie uh, Galena. You know, that's a tough choice there. Woo. (laughs) Tough thing. Yeah. Big Top Pee-wee. Yeah, it was was fine. I know it was considered a big disappointment, but, uh, and it, bombed right the box office uh yeah it was not a big hit but Wee was on tv at the same time this is why uh, like freddy krueger goes from his biggest movie ever in the 80s to oh a steep drop with dream child but he was on tv for two years every saturday night so uh, i never that thought about that it. but that might have been yeah because i mean he you know the series, 25 to 29 to 45 to 49 to like 22 yeah and he was, he was on MTV, and t- like he was, the explosion happened there, and I think people are just done. Um, oh. But uh, going also to iconic horror people or thriller suspense, uh, Tim Burton dips back into TV here with Alfred Hitchcock presents. Uh, the episode is called "The Jar." <laughs> So they brought back uh, the Alfred Hitchcock presents in the eighties, but they did this with a lot. They did Twilight Zone. They did uh, other other ones that I anthology horror. Show. I think uh, what else came back? There was a Limits? newish Mission Impossible there, and there was a Mission 80s, Impossible. They brought Dark Shadows back. Oh, that was the early nineties. Was the Dark Shadows? Yeah. But you know, we think oh, they keep bringing back all these TV shows. They would bring them back, but they would make them new again rather yes. than just. They would continue bring them back partially in the hopes that people were not aware of the original stuff, yeah, and would embrace them as new to you and unique and exciting, as opposed to something that merely reminded you of something you liked twenty years ago. Yeah. And the Mission Impossible one, for all intents and purposes, was new. It just carried over a character yeah. that just led missions. I mean, <laughs> and uh, and honestly, like 
I I don't th- like one of my favorite shows of all time was the Battlestar Galactica relaunch on Sci-Fi Channel that we would never get nowadays. Yeah. Or people would bitch and moan that it wasn't true to the original. Yeah, where that's Well, they did back then too. Oh yeah, that's true. They did. Oh, Starbucks a woman. Ah. Um, Just wasn't as it wasn't as loud, and the show was. Well, there's no social media, so we need to ignore these people. Right. You know, the ratings and reviews spoke for themselves. They hid on ain't it cool news talkbacks. Yeah, where they hid, and you just ignored them. But this episode is uh, written by Michael McDowell and Larry Wilson on a short story by Ray Bradbury, and it stars Griffin Dunn, Fionn Lewis, Lorraine Newman, Stephen Shellen, and he reunites with Paul Bartell, who was the teacher in Frankenweenie. Uh, It's about a suffering artist who finds a mysterious jar and decides to incorporate it into his exhibition. It's an enormous success, but it also causes problems around the household. Uh, so, Scott, this one, uh, I feel like, is a good precursor almost to like an aspect of Beetlejuice, because this feels like we're seeing what Catherine O'Hara's crowd does outside of the Beetlejuice movie. I feel like <laughs> we're in some sect of her social circle um, with this, and... This is a nifty little creeper story with a good Twilight Zone ending of sorts, but like I feel Burton on this story a lot. Like I don't feel like I'm watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents at all. I feel like I'm watching a little twisted tale of Tim Burton that's a little more adult than his normal stuff, but still he's there. Like the lighting, the camera angle, like I feel like Burton's in control of this. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 certainly a case of a an established film director going quote unquote back to TV and feeling very comfortable in this this established terrain. And yeah, it's always I don't want to say weird. Yeah, okay, fine. It's always weird for me when I see a Burton film that takes place in the real world and deals with somewhat more explicitly adult themes. Yeah. I mean obviously a lot of his earlier films are, you know, dark and taboo and scary and violent, but in a way that, you know, kids like them it's parents that freak out mm-hmm. so you know when, when we have a tim burton movie that opens with a you know concentration era nazi soldiers yeah. it's like well that's different huh. um and I, I think it's to his credit to a certain extent that like in sweeney todd as happens in the play there is you know an implied rape it's like well i've never seen that in a tim burton movie right fair enough um I remember the 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 weirdest part of Dark Shadows is just the opening credits montage where it's a young woman driving a normal car on a normal street set to a normal 1970s pop song, mm-hmm. and it's just oh it's it's again it's it's so real big fish the opening scenes of that where it's just really crud up in a normal office doing normal work wearing normal clothes yeah well that was and the it, point of Big Fish was to yeah, kind yeah. of do something like um, that and it's it's. And again, this is neither good nor bad, although I think Big Fish is a terrific little movie. Um, but as we, as especially as he gets more and more into just hardcore fantasy, and you know, that's the that's what he's offered, that's you know where the mm-hmm. money is, that it's it becomes more and more interesting the few times he does dip himself back and back to earth, so to speak. Yeah. Um yeah. as for the show, it's fine. It feels very slight, even by the standards of the newfangled Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock presents. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, it feels more like it could be a part of Creep Show than Alfred Hitchcock, too. Like it feels like if yes. you threw this in a Creep Show movie, it makes sense. Yeah, uh, it didn't do much for me other than well, this is interesting to see, right? You know what he did in between his first two big theatrical pictures. Yeah, um, and that's no. really all I've got to say about really, it. Really, yeah, it's nice seeing Lorraine Newman, um, one yeah. of Saturday Night Live's uh, original cast members here, um, and it's you kind of get the the point of it and it's they do a lot with limited space it looks like they only had really one room to shoot in and they try to do i mean they there's like a room and there's like a junkyard and then there's that opening sequence with the nazi that's in a storeroom but i mean it's mostly just a little inside sets stage um but it, it works quite well and i do feel like he is the director of this. I even though it's yes. it's kind of yeah, I I feel like he's got his touch on it. They allowed him to make a Tim Burton thing and even though it doesn't feel like what I normally grab from Alfred like the stories well, it's a little bit supernatural for some of Alfred Hitchcock presents to me a little bit, but I'm not too familiar with the 80s Alfred Hitchcock presents. Maybe it was this bonkers every week. I'm more OG. Back in my day, it was in black and white. When he was alive and you weren't exploiting his name? (laughs) A finer detail. (laughs) Gosh. At least not Pat Hitchcock presents. Jesus. So, yeah. But yeah, it's it's really, it's a, a, uh, you can find it on YouTube, folks. It's just there to watch. Um, And it's only like 22 minutes. It's. Uh, if you if you want to scratch that inter- that curiosity the itch that's fine but uh, this also Scott I you can correct me if I'm wrong but this is Tim Burton's the only time he's worked with Universal oh that's random and weird but yes this is it this one TV episode uh, for Alfred Hitchcock presents but I say that his touch and I, I, I emphasize that this one felt like Tim Burton stuff because we're gonna move on to another television episode he directed in this time uh fairy tale theater aladdin and his wonderful lamp hello i'm shelly duvall welcome to fairy tale theater legend has it that good fortune smiles upon those most deserving tonight's tale however follows the adventures of a rather lazy young man who seems to stumble upon fortune but what he does with his simple lamp proves him a most deserving hero aladdin and his wonderful lamp. Written by Mark Curtis and Rod Ash and Alistair Berry. Starring Shelley Duvall, Valerie Bertinelli, Robert Carradine, James Earl Jones, Leonard Nimoy, Ray Allen, Joseph Marr, and Ray Sharkey. Yes, they all sound like your favorite <laughs> Arab Arab actors, uh, <laughs> West, West Asia actors. Uh, this is a retelling of The Arabian Nights folktale about a Middle Eastern lad obtaining a mysterious magical lamp. Scott, are you familiar with fairy tale theater? I personally loosely. I used to watch it on Friday nights on Fox. Uh, my sister and I used to watch it uh, religiously. Um, this this one, this particular one, from my memory, because uh, I have not watched fairy tale theater until this right now since like the eighties, nineties. It had a positive outcome in the end, but I remember they typically went for a more grim finish, 
like the old books did with the like their little mermaid one does not end positively. Um, and you used to be able to get these at the video store. They used to have them on VHS yeah. for rental. Um, That's how I first watched it because I was curious to check out old Tim Burton stuff. Yeah, uh, and Shelley Duvall, who he worked with um, on Frank and Weenie, is here. Um, she, I was, yeah, I used to like watch. She was an interesting, good host for this. I. I I really like that. And he works with uh, Joseph Marr here, uh, who he worked with on, was he, in, yeah, he was in Frank and Weenie. He was the Jeffrey Jones type role uh, before he would cast Jeffrey Jones and things. So Tim Burton turned Hansel and Gretel Asian prior to this. And now he turns Aladdin like almost totally white. So is that, oh, that's, this was, <laughs> this was, what happened all the time back then pretty much like and i couldn't tell we're watching we were watching a a digital rip of a obviously vhs quality thing i can't tell if heavy makeup was put on but i'm assuming it was to make them look a little more darker complected <laughs> so tonight we are canceling Valerie Bertinelli, Bertinelli, Robert Carradine, Leonard Nimoy, Ray Allen, Joseph Marr, and Ray Sharkey. Canceled tonight. We're going to let James Earl Jones, Jones go. I don't know what... Jeannie is a... That's true. It could be anything. It's a... It's a... Yeah. It's a supernatural being. We're going to... We'll take that one to the court of Twitter. Um, Indeed. So those... All of them will be canceled tonight. Sorry, Trekkies. And three men in a little fannies. You're done. It's over. Leonard is gone. So there will be no voyage home. Yes. Yep. Um, of all, all the the souls I have met my journeys, his was the most racist. There you go. Hey, we uh, oh, if they if they made it past the top of this episode, Scott. I think that's we're true. Done. That's true. I'm sorry. I don't think anyone's <laughs> racist here. This is just misguided, ignorant shit that happens no, it's, all it's, the time. Yeah, but six years later, you'd have the movie, which was mostly white people in the Disney movie, and we don't even know that he cast this. He might, yeah. and, and from what I can tell from this, this is a hired hand job. I don't. Oh yeah, any Tim Burton on here? No. This looks like every other episode of Fairy Tale Theater. It has a gigantic cast for a, a rando episode. Um but yeah, this is it looks like it should have been it's this is the most BBC ITV that American television gets. It is yeah. stage looking um and yeah. for me the only entertainment value was the cast. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's kind of fun watching Jeremy James Earl Jones. Jones the genie's the best the genie. thing about this. You know, it's fun watching Leonard Nimoy be the you know the evil Jafar or whatever. But otherwise, there's evil not a magician. Lot of that. that was whatever. <laughs> that was what he's not. I think Disney came up with the name Jafar. I'm that's you know what that tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean it's 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 only a little bit more entertaining than the Hansel and Gretel one we discussed last week. Yeah, uh, probably because of the cast, because there's it's fun to see people that we kind of know in that particular venue. Yeah, I mean, I, you could make a cool documentary on fairy tale theater and get some of that from this. That that that's something I would I would see because yeah. it was an interesting show that lasted for a while. I think it did. It was less. Well, there's amazing stories, and then there was this at the time. A lot of anthology stuff going on on TV, honestly. Yeah. 
um, in this period of the 80s, which is something that we don't talk about. We talk about anthology horror films all the time. People like to talk about that, but... Um, but I, yeah, think this, part, huh? I think part of it was before TV became excess, you know, explicitly serialized, you know, yeah. X-Files, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, although even those, you could, you know, right. pop it and watch most episodes without yeah. having seen everything you else. You waited, you had the mythology yeah. one somewhere in the middle, but it was a yeah. lot of standalone stuff. Yeah. yeah, Monster of the Week, if you will. But even yeah. before that, there was less of a need to have your television show where, you know, at one big story. So you could have these standalone you know, things with big movie stars and interesting directors because there was only a commitment for one episode. Yeah, just a week or two shooting. Yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't like, guest star stuff. There was people that, like, lived, and I don't... It's probably not possible now, but, like, uh, the guy played um, the second Doctor in Doctor Who, and he was the priest in... The Omen, Patrick Troughton, he lived for the character roles. He liked to, he didn't, the only regular series he took was Doctor Who. He only did it for three years because he liked traveling show to show, playing different characters all the time. And he'd do a couple of guest stints on different shows, things like that. I don't know that that really can exist too much anymore. It's limited, if so, because everything's everything's pre-filmed. Everything is already in the can by the time. I don't know, it's... It, that, it's, it's it's a different world. Yeah, it's a much different world. But people used to do that. Like, yeah, oh, I got a couple weeks. I can do fairy tale theater before I go to direct Three Men and a Baby. Like, I, <laughs> it's probably we're about where we're at, isn't it? Yeah, this is like close. I think this is like eighty six or something. Yeah, he goes off and directs Three Men and a Baby, which comes the biggest grossing movie of nineteen eighty seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so this is fairy tale theater. Um. There are a lot of episodes. Uh, and this is just the Aladdin story. And if you're familiar with the Disney one, it plays out a little bit differently here, but some of the same. Uh, Robert Carradine, the <laughs> Revenge of the Nerds as Aladdin, is his voice is there. It reminds me of like what we hear in like the Disney thing. But um, yeah, it's very much somebody filmed your local theater production and added some special effects to it of a laugh. Yeah. That's what it feels like. And that's what all fairy tale theater felt like. Uh, but that was, I, you know, that's part of the charm to it. Um, and people were fine with this on TV back then. So, yeah, but it is, it does feel very long watching. Yeah. It's, it's not, again, it's, there's very little of value beyond, com- you know, if once you're a complete, this is, this is the most curious you're going to have to be. If you're, uh, aside from the shorts, which mostly pass, short. ma- yeah, mostly pass. Um, if you're checking out something that beyond like Frank and Weenie, this isn't it. <laughs> um, check out the jar that we talked yeah. about just a second ago. But Tim uh, got to go back and do some more the uh, big screen work with Beetlejuice from the director of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. When two ghosts can't talk the living into leaving their house. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? They call the ghost... Beetlejuice! ...with the most... Can you be scary? What do you think of this? This is amazing. Michael Keaton... ...is a ghost called Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Rated PG. Sneak preview Saturday, March 26th. Written by Warren Skarin... Skarin? Skarin... Uh, on a story by Michael McDowell and Larry Wilson. So Michael McDowell's back in the picture here. Uh, starring 
Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones, Anne McEnroe, Glenn Shaddix, and as my one of my favorite film professors at Ball State used to say, Dick Cavett is an asshole. <laughs> Fair enough. It, they did a so my professor was on the like A and E biography of Groucho Marx. And he was talking about how he felt that oh, there's some. I th- I want I'm gonna throw World War II here, um, but it affected. Uh, he he has this big thing about talking about how Groucho Marx was affected by World War II or something like that, and they 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 changed the thing and like really had this big spiel about where this guy's insight comes from. And he cut to Dick Cavett. Yeah, I don't think any of that's. And I was like. <laughs> Shit. So he has it out for Dick Cavett, uh, Cavett, Cavett, whatever, uh, because of that. And I always remember going, oh, shit. The talk show, the guy, the guy from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the Dream Warriors? <laughs> uh, but yeah. So uh, the spirits of a deceased couple are harassed by an unbearable family that has moved into their home and hire a malicious spirit to drive them out. To this day, Day, Scott, with Beetlejuice, I feel is one of the most original, imaginative movies I've ever seen, and I still am shocked to this day that this movie exists, period. Like, blows my mind. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's and that people it's love such it. A, it's such <laughs> a delightful high concept. Yeah. It's a haunted house movie from the point of view of the ghosts. Yes. And not unlike Ghostbusters, it's a situation where you take a supernatural and fantastical concept and apply that with the mundane mediocrity, not mediocrity, you know, the mundane day-to-day working stiff mentality of blue collar workers Mm -hmm. in which, you know, Beetlejuice, who is the title character, who basically is the villain of the picture, by the way, which is something that I think a lot of folks seem to miss when they talk about developing sequels or spinoffs or whatever. Well, this is like the Ghostbusters lore because, yeah. like, every, eh, Ghostbusters franchise. Ghostbusters <laughs> was a very profitable, fa- like, they had yeah. two movies and they had a TV cartoon series that ran for a long time, had action figures, for, it had its own following. And I think that's yeah. where kids and stuff build off of. Beetlejuice 2 had a, a show that ran for three seasons and uh, went for, what, 94 episodes. Which Beetlejuice was the main character with Lydia, and they were pals and did adventures. That's he where was I a think little bit less rapey. It. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I mean he's, he's a crazy you know, guy there, but yeah, I mean, you watch the movie The Real Beetlejuice, and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, even when I was a kid, it's like I was intrigued by the fact that this title character was someone that was generally repulsive, physically and emotionally and psychologically. You were. And the film pulls off with something that's often very hard to do, which is where you're rooting against action. You theoretically walk into a movie called Beetlejuice if you want to see Beetlejuice run around and make mischief. Yep. But by the time he shows up, you know you are as you are so sympathetic with Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, who mm-hmm. are still just a, this shockingly well-adjusted married couple. Yeah, even though it's implied that they are dealing with stuff because they can't have kids. Right. Um, and again, that's something that, you know, maybe you'll pick it up when you're eight, maybe you won't. Um, 
but you want them to succeed and you want them to win. So when Beetlejuice becomes more of a problem than a solution, mm-hmm. you know, the film risks turning on itself by making the viewer want Beetlejuice to not be there. Yeah. Um, but it still works partially because it commits to making him an antagonist. Um, partially just because, you know, it's, it's, it's a wildly fast movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not long, minutes, yeah, but... Take, but it just moves like a bullet. Yeah. If anything, the third act is almost too fast. Right. But, you know, whatever. This, you know, Gina Davis is wonderful here. Alec Baldwin in one of the, like, most wholesome and sweet and all-around gee whiz good guy performances I've ever seen from him. Yeah, it's almost like he's got a fork in the road here. and he. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, he he plays good guys all the time, but this is one of the more explicitly nice guys I've ever seen from him. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, weird comparison, but like James, Gar- uh, James Spader in Stargate. Right. And where it's like, he's like the most wholesome and sweet and morally good person you've ever seen J- James Spader yeah. ever play. Yeah. Um, and I'm not huge on Stargate, but that is an interesting, you know, that, that is one reason why I think that film stands out. But anyway, back to Beetlejuice, it's it's very funny. It's very clever. The special effects are genuinely scary yeah. in a PG kind of way. And they hold up wonderfully. And again, when I was a kid, I was, you know, eight, I hadn't even turned to eight, I don't think, yet, because the film came out March 30th and I my birthday is April 2nd. So and I did see this, you know, Saturday of opening weekend. Mm-hmm. And I was fine. I didn't cry or anything. But yeah, some of the early special effects creeped me out. It's scary. You know, the it, bit no, where it, they yeah. chop off their own heads, you know, and they're sitting there in the closet with their own severed that was scary pulling her face off like yeah. in the the worms hell that whatever that um, is and beetlejuice you, you like laughed a bit and saw he was like silly and then you're like, he's like, a mm, dick mm, yeah <laughs> you know he's a genuinely unpleasant person yeah um and in a skewed way and, and you know i'm making connections that i shouldn't hear but he kind of reminds me of Heath Ledger's joker in that he's yeah. this comical clownish character that really is just not fun to be around mm-hmm uh, well, he's, he's kind of like that annoying, like rude uncle, but like yes. this is what he's like when he's not at the family things. Yes. And around um, family. Yeah. I mean, you know, and he's constantly trying to sh- you know, schlop on Winona Ryder, which is And Gina Davis. Boy. He's equal opportunity. And Gina Davis. Yeah. And as a lecherous eight year old boy, I totally understood. Don't get me wrong. But nonetheless, I was, you know, still rooting for them to have happily ever after. Yeah. It, it actually pulls off a tricky balance where it doesn't villainize the, the invading family. Right. Even though by all intents and purposes, you shouldn't. Again, it, you end up rooting for both sides of this specific conflict. Yeah. It, um, it's, a, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's fascinating just how this plays. Like, and it, like it feels uncompromised. Like, yes. And because like someone would have had to say they have to get the family out of there or the ghosts have to go to a better place at the end or something like that. And no, th- this is... Feels uncomfortable. Beetlejuice is still around at the end. Uh, the family is just, they're going to live haunting the house and be parental type figures yes. to Lydia while they, while Jeffrey Jones stuff are still there. I mean, it's, it's almost a skewed, fractured, you know, multi-part unconventional family, which of course was, you know, one of the tropes of the eighties and the, you know, the divorce generation, mm-hmm. but taking this, the weird bizarro extreme. Yeah. To where the actual physical parents barely want to be parents, but that's okay because this ghost couple that never got to have kids of their own now have this surrogate daughter. 
Yeah, without the responsibility of being alive. Yeah, exactly. It's every parent's dream. No, yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, this was this was not Winona Ryder's first film, but it certainly was her breakout role. Right. Yes. Um, and that character was sort of one of the first times that you saw that kind of you know goth. I mean. It's a cliche to say that you know Tim Burton invented the goth movement, but it's he's not slowly entirely... creating the hot yeah. topic franchise. Yeah, so exactly. More with Edward Scissorhands later on, but this is the first step to creating hot and topic. Even if he did not invent goth, he, like Michael Jackson and the Moonwalk, popularized it. Yeah, because you know it's 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 and that character is such a line in the sand for an entire generation of kids, mm-hmm. you know, men and women. You know, boys and girls. Yep. And yeah, obviously, I was an eight year old. I obviously had a crush on her. Are we kidding? Yeah. Um, well, Tim Burton made it say, "It's okay. I see you, and you feel, yeah. and it's okay to now." And that's when we talk. Like, I, I hate to do it, saying like, "Oh, this little white girl with a rich family goth is seen now," but that's the kind of things when you talk about representation matters. Yeah. This is the type of thing in a a less important way to that how that reflects because you see Lydia you identify you cool and then look at all the creative art and stuff that comes from someone who's oh when I was I watched Beetlejuice and all this they come fashion designers become that because they felt seen they felt okay I'm not just alone thinking like this is this this is in a simpler sillier way this is why that stuff people talk about that stuff and it matters. Granted, you just sell the movie back then. It's Beetlejuice. This happens to be a character in there. You don't go. Yeah, yeah. You don't go. There is a goth girl in this movie, and 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 this. And did you know? You go see this movie this weekend because there is a goth girl in it. No, no. You just sell your movie. And that the nineties were really good at that. Yeah. They were really good at because the movies were cheap enough that they didn't have to appeal to every single demographic. Right. Beetlejuice was fifteen million dollars, which was a decent budget right. for a small scale picture in nineteen eighty eight. It looks again more expensive, getting the but feeling uncompromised because there wasn't that much on the line. Yeah, there, there wasn't a franchise in the making. There wasn't a cinematic universe that was live or die by whether this film becomes a four quadrant blockbuster. A lot takes place in an attic. Like yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, and it's just, and I actually think, you know, without skipping ahead, I think this film covers a lot of ground that Edward Scissorhands did in a subtler way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's as much as we talk about how correctly Tim Burton is known as a director who does interpretations of existing property. This is probably the definitive for me, at least, the definitive original Tim Burton movie. Yeah, this he only does a few. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really funny because people think that. That it became a thing, but right now our last movie was an adaptation of a character from a stage production. Was Stand-up that comedian? Original? Was that based on anything? Um, I'm still looking. Um, yeah, but I it might be. Um, but yeah, so this and then you know Edward Scissorhands and what we have like Big Fish is Big Fish or is that that's based on a based novel? On a novel, yeah, I believe based on a novel. So. Yeah, um, and Big Eyes is based on a true story. Well, so is Ed Wood. Uh, so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, it, it, it's really light. Like, we like his touches to things. We like how he twists things. That's one thing with him as a director that um, has always been the thing, more so than these original characters. Like, we have 
Nightmare Before Christmas, Corpse Bride, Santa, yep. Frank and Weenie, the, the animated stuff. But yeah, and one's an adaptation of his own thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, uh, but yeah, Beetlejuice too. Um, he, this is where he uh, pairs up with you know Michael Keaton for the first time, Jeffrey Jones. Um, but Keaton is just let loose here. So this is the ultimate sequel to Night Shift, I guess, for him. Oh, yeah. And he's just let loose. It's, it, it's, you have to watch this movie a bunch of times because you miss so much stuff he does. Yeah. Like, he's so fast. He's quick. And, like, I, I read that he ad-libbed 90% of his lines, but, wow. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm willing to bet for a film that was supposed to be PG, the line, nice fucking model was not in the script. And that's one of the most known <laughs> F-bombs in a PG-13 yeah. movie of all no, time. it's PG. Oh, it's PG. Oh, yeah. PG. That's right. Oh, uh, yeah. Nice fucking model. Honk, honk. Honk, honk. And um, I think when they were watching it, they probably heard the honk, honk and thought it, that honk, honk <laughs> right after. Sublimity the, the, probably the, said. The second best is in Spaceballs where, fuck, even in the future, nothing works. Right. Yeah. Uh, but there, yeah, I mean, there, there's the the music, the dance, jumping the line. There's and, two full blown musical sequences yes. in this picture, mm-hmm. and this is, I imagine myself and a lot of people, the first time they ever heard, uh, crap, now I'm losing. What's the song that they all get hypnotized and sing? Uh, Come, Mister Tellyland. Mm-hmm. Tell yep, yep. Yep. Nah, nah, nah. yep. And I those songs are. Pl- it's it. funny. <laughs> when I was like, those songs play early on in the movie because they're records that the people own. So when yeah. they're watching, doing the models and stuff, it's pretty creative that it's already in there. Um, but, you know, music help. Like, musical numbers help movies. People, I hate musicals, but you love musical numbers in your other regular movies, you know. Uh, but, yeah, Gina Dale, Davis was... fucking song's Dale. 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 Oh, So... Um, I think even when I was a kid, I called it Daylight Comes We Want to Go Home. I didn't know the there actual you go. name. Daylight Comes. Uh, oh, this movie has Bob Goulet in it. I forgot to mention that at yeah. the top. That's It's just interesting, weird casting that feels throwback almost to put people like Dick Cavett and uh, yeah. Bob Goulet, Robert Goulet in films and just, hey, these are people, but they stand out because of the who they are. Feels very 60s type thing, which is where he calls a lot of his inspiration from um and the art the art scene in this lends itself to his next movie batman if you look at where jack lives it's kind of feels an extension of some of the art in the house that Catherine o'hara's character brings in beetlejuice and yeah it's very art deco etc etc expressionist mm-hmm. um and yeah i mean you know i i the film was a success. It opened with approximately $8 million and legged out to $75 million domestic. Oh, and yeah. We I, need to do uh, some box office. Well, no, eventually. Here. The, my, what I was getting to is that he wasn't officially hired for Batman until Beetlejuice opened, mm-hmm. which now seems like an incredibly novel concept. It's like, we need to make sure that the small film we gave him actually works on audiences before we give him our $40 million must-succeed picture. Right. Right. Um, it's not the uh, sucker punches bombing. Yeah. Here's- like, oh shit! Sucker punch just bombed. Amy Adams is Lois Lane. Yep. Uh, yo. Oh. So yeah, we. I meant to stop Pee Wee to talk about his box office, but I guess we could just roll on to both of those uh, for this. But before before we do that, I want to. I do want to mention an interesting thing I thought of. So Tim Burton, uh, Beetlejuice, and then his next film's Batman. Of course, we've mentioned multiple times. His I two, these, seen Batman. I need these, to watch that. This these week. two, these two films in a row that he makes 
uh, spawned cartoon series that would right. run for uh, for a good time and be pretty notable. Not so much. I mean, Beetlejuice. Not as much as Batman the Animated Series, but I mean, Batman the Animated Series isn't getting made without the hit Tim Burton film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's it was, and the the theme for that show is inspired the Bruce. Like everything's very tied to the the Burton especially Batman. initially initially in those initial yes. episodes when they were, you know, as the show goes on, I think it's sort mm-hmm. of. You know, after maybe the first twenty episodes or so, give or take, yeah, when it starts becoming okay, now we'll play in the nineteen seventies, and now we'll make a you know a, an ode to the campy era. Now we'll you know go grim crime drama, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least the initial pitch was, if you like Batman and Batman Returns, you'll love Batman the Animated Series. Yes. Um, and yeah, you're right. And obviously, Beetlejuice. You know, that's an original, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and hell, obviously, you know, does Pee Wee's Playhouse exist without Pee Wee's Big Adventure? That's true because, and a lot of Pee Wee's Playhouse stuff carries to Pee Wee's or P- Big Adventure carries to Pee Wee's Playhouse, even yeah. though it, it's even more because they have just one set to work with. So obviously, you got to liven it up. But um, so yeah, that's actually interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You know, it was his first three films all inspired or you know indirectly or otherwise television, yeah went television extensions of them yeah um but yeah and even though they were you know stand standalone enough that they did they weren't necessarily in the continuity of the movie a mm-hmm. juice was a little different but yep. again you know nobody you know if they ever do make a sequel no one's gonna have to have seen all the episodes of the cartoon yep uh and then you know he would go on to do a, a play of the apes movie that would spawn a trilogy after it and then a five movies <laughs> that was would, so disliked five movies that would come over. before it and a tv yeah. series and a cartoon that would come before it retroactively so, <laughs> there you go. Uh, mark Wahlberg wasn't the only one that time traveled right so all right let's let's get into the box office for uh Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure opened with four and a half million dollars in August of 1985. It would leg out to 41 million world or domestic. I don't know the international numbers on a budget of I think like eight million dollars, give or take. I can look it up if you give me a second. And then Big Top Pee-wee, which would open three years later, seven million dollar budget would open to four and a half million again, but it would only crap out at about 15 and change. So yeah, it was not a success. So Pee-wee's Big Adventure was uh, amidst the run of Back to the Future dominating the box office there. Yes. And Um, oh, it's kind of, yeah. So if people want to know the top 10, the weekend Pee-wee's Big Adventure came out, uh, you got Back to the Future at number one, uh, Summer Rental. Uh, from Paramount debuts at number two, topping Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, then you have the second week of, or you have National Lampoon's uh, European Vacations, third week. You have Fright Night, second week. Weird Science in its second week. Uh, Real Genius in its first. Those are close together. That's crazy. Yeah. Real Genius, Weird Science. Uh, Cocoon in its eighth week. Follow That Bird, which I saw in theaters. Second I. week, uh, and Silverado. It's fucking awesome. Silverado, number five. Silverado was fucking awesome, but that's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then good old Black Cauldron in 11th place, and it's... Uh, As Tim Burton goes, ha, 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 Indeed. So... Um, and then Beetlejuice would open in uh, March 30th, uh, 1988, that might have been Easter weekend. I'm honestly not sure off the top of my head. It would open with $8 million. And then that would cause them, of course, to basically pull the trigger on Batman. At $8 million. 
Yep. yep. There you go. Because the movie costs 15. So yep. All right. we're going to get this and back. It, and this was back to when, you know, you'd leg out to 75 from an $8 million opening. And that wasn't that unusual. Oh, my um, gosh. Scott, pause here because I you want to see what Disney's trying to do to Tim Burton? Okay. So I, this is kind of funny. So the top 10 this week for with Beetlejuice, it was number one. Uh, Bill Oxy Blues is on its second week. Bright Lights, Big City debuts. Fox and the Hound was re-released. Oh, it's in the it's, week it's, before. It's the week before. That the classic Disney will teach that guy like they do the Don <laughs> Bluth. They tried to Don do what they do to Don Bluth to Tim Burton, but Tim Burton said, "Ha!" Uh, <laughs> well, of course, and they release. I love that they re-released the Little Mermaid in 1997, a week before Anastasia opened. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the weekend that Prince of Egypt opened in theaters in 98, they Bugs Life was already in theaters, but they said, hey, this weekend, new outtakes. Oh, that's right. Um, I remember that. Um, so, okay, round it out. Number five, seventh sign, Demi Moore, that debuted. Johnny Be Good at number six, Good Morning Vietnam 7, Police Academy 5, Mission Assignment Miami Beach uh, was at number eight, number nine, New Life. A new life number ten was DOA. We mentioned it, so I'm going to drop it there. Number eleven was Three Men and a Baby in its nineteenth week at 155 million dollars. And Moonstruck, that uh, putting that one for Danielle Spavarez is number twelve. <laughs> She's right. It's awesome. Yes, it's a good movie. But yeah, oh. so yeah, Tim Burton trouncing Disney again. Yeah. Um. But- to be fair, they would eventually, you know, distribute Ed Wood, which was the ultimate one for me movie. Right. Uh, but we'll get to that in a few weeks, I assume. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would leg out to $74 million domestic on a $15 million budget. And then his next movie was obviously Batman. Have you seen Batman yet? Um, I I think I got a guy who's going to get me a copy. Okay, yeah. I'm going to see if I can track it down. Hard to find. Hard to find. I mean, uh, I mean, Michael Keaton's playing a vigilante. Oh, did he do that? Wait, He's a comic actor. Wait, Michael Keaton. Oh man, I thought huh. Adam West was playing Batman. I I might need to. I might have got the wrong copy. Oh, that, that's that's shame. Well, you know, if there's a Diet Coke commercial beforehand, you know you have the right copy. Okay, and and then Looney Tunes trying to sell me Warner yes. Brothers Studio merch. <laughs> yes, for ten dollars you can get a pencil. They paid animators to do that rather than just have two people talking. If I think about that, I'm like, what was crunch time for that? You know, what was like, we need this now. You know, like, my daffy's in there. Hey, but we still remember it 34 years later. I know. Well, because we watched that VHS over and over and over and over again. We'll talk about that. Diet Coke. We'll talk about that. Oh, yeah, we will. So, um, but yeah, that'll wrap us on this second installment. Um, coming up in part three, Batman, Scissorman, Catwoman, and Jack Skellington. Uh, but before we go, Scott, let people know where they can keep up with you. I am currently at therap.com as a uh, staff reporter, journalist, whatever the hell you want to call me. And I'm at Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. SEO machine. has few- Tell me, yeah. listeners, should I start a TikTok? Ooh. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, written work at Weisselblue.com. Future Brandon here in November. 
hopefully has seen Casablanca on 4K Ultra HD over there at whysoblue.com. Hopefully has reviewed uh, the Sony Picture Classics 4K Ultra HD set. I'm going to guess they they shaft me on that one, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, And, you know, much more cool stuff, of course, and is enjoying the Criterion Barnes & Noble 50% off sales. That's what Future Brand is doing, or current for you because you're listening, but it's October for us. All right. (laughs) There's more for the Brad Peters Show this week. As always, come back, and I can't wait for next week. It's Batman, and if there's anything Scott and I have talked too much about on podcast writing, is Batman, and we're going to repeat everything we've always said again next week. It's going to be a 10-hour episode. And then Batman Returns, we're going to repeat the things we said <laughs> about Batman Returns. Hours. Uh, and then we'll talk about Edward Scissorhands and A Nightmare Before Christmas. So Slightly shorter. Slightly shorter. So, all right, everybody, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. <laughs>